0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. And it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Anthony Aguirre, the author of Cosmological Cones. Very interesting look uh, from a physicist's point of view at, with an angle on how to de- deal with it, it differently on a lot of the issues that are going on that people are discussing in physics. Thanks a lot for coming.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation to speak tonight and for all of you for, for coming out. So I you know I study physics, I'm a professor of physics, and and if a student comes in to me and asks, you know, should I major in physics, what uh, why should I, what is there in, in, uh, what's in it for me? I would kind of say, well, physics is good at training, how to do general purpose problem solving. There are lots of careers you can have with an undergraduate in physics and so on. And that's fine. And that's true. Um, if someone, you know, if I were had, trying to justify my salary to, to some bookkeeper and asked me, why do you study physics? I would say, well, physics underlies the physical sciences. It's a highly predictive thing. Uh, it underlies many of our technologies and so on. But if I asked myself, you know, why do I study physics? Then the answer would be somewhat different. And the answer, I think, would, would come in two parts. And I suspect those two parts are are part of the reason that all of you are here and that and people read books about physics who aren't professional physicists. And one of them I would say is, of course, to understand reality. You know, we want to understand what is the fundamental nature of the world that we live in. And physics is one of the key paths toward that understanding that has unfolded over the past few centuries. We've learned a tremendous amount about the core nature of reality through studying physics. So understanding reality is one reason that I do it, but there's more. And the reason why I think people get fascinated with physics and why I did, and not in ways that go a little bit beyond biology or uh, chemistry or other totally valid ways of understanding reality, which is that... Many of the things that you learn in physics, you, especially modern physics, you realize are, are both true. You know, we've studied them rigorously. They're mathematics. They're uh, falsifiable theories that have been tested again and again at high precision. And yet they're so strange. They're so counterintuitive. They totally violate what we thought reality was and replace it with these new notions. And so I think that, that experience, to experience wonder at the sort of deep nature of the world and how different it is from what we might think it is on the surface It's just a profound experience that you have again and again, I think, as you, as you get into the depths of physics. So that's why I study physics, those two things. And that's part of, that's largely why I wrote this book to try to uh, accomplish those twin goals and and sort of portray some of that to the reader. What is the, what is reality? How do we understand it? Where, where have our theories of physics brought us over the past several hundred years, you know, kind of to the cutting edge today, but also to confront the reader with how strange that is, what, uh, to, to give them that experience of directly confronting here is this very odd aspect of reality that is both true and sort of hard to believe, or that we simply don't understand that we have this, that we feel like is true. And this is that we feel like is true. And yet when we put them together, we have a contradiction or a paradox or something that is just, uh, sort of baffling. We can, imagine that at some point we may understand that, but at the moment we simply don't. And so to bring the reader to that, to that sense of mystery. And so in sort of approaching these goals, I I took a rather strange uh, form. I I tell people this is a book, you know, a standard physics book. It takes place, you know, in the 17th century and across the world trip as expressed in Zen koans. Um, So, that, of course, is joke because no other book attempts to do that. <laughs> uh, it's a very strange thing. It took me a long time to try to sort of figure out uh, how that would fit together and, and why do it that way. And the motivation, you know, why use the, the this koan, this sort of parable, the story form? I'd say, I'd say there were sort of three. One is it's fun. You know, I had a great time reading the book. I hope the, the people who read it enjoy it as much as I, or at least have as much as I enjoyed writing it. Um, second, that I think humans are storytelling animals, and to tie the physics concepts to sort of memorable, fun stories, I hope, will kind of help, help them stay in mind, help you refer back, or reader refer back to some physical concept and connect it to a story. And third, uh, in Zen practice, a koan is precisely this form of confronting someone with reality, uh, in this kind of startling and strange and uncomfortable at first way, uh, which you then, if you stick with, may have some way of kind of suddenly having an insight, suddenly looking at something from a completely new direction, reconfiguring your understanding of the world through this kind of intense confrontation. So, so that's, those are the, the things that I, I sort of wanted to put, um, into the form. And, and today I wanted to share sort of three of those, there's, there's around 50 in the book. So I, I wanted to focus on three just to give you a sense of what it's like and to get some discussion going. Um, I chose these three because they're, uh, again, fun. Uh, they're also point to really big unsolved questions in current physics and cosmology and ones that I've spent a, a large amount of time thinking about myself professionally. Um, and uh, the first one I'll call, I've called... Theodicy, And this, this is a uh, reference to discussions by Leibniz and other Enlightenment philosophers about whether we live in kind of the best of all possible worlds. And it starts with this intimidating-looking table and set of equations. Uh, don't be intimidated. I'll, 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 I'll talk about what these are. So the laws of physics, like Newton's law that... Uh, Any two objects that track gravitationally or Maxwell's laws that underlie the operation of electricity and magnetism have two parts to them. They have the law part that says, you know, that expresses how strong the force is between two objects. It depends on the masses of the objects and how far apart they are. But also constants, which tell you the magnitude, the numerical amount of how much force there is between two objects at a given distance and of given masses. That's that G you see there in the middle uh, is Newton's gravitational constant that expresses exactly that. Um, There are other constants, the speed of light C, Planck's constant, that H with a slash through it, expressing things about quantum mechanics. Um, And so these constants, kind of along with the form of the laws of physics, constitute our standard fundamental physics model of the universe, and it turns out there are about 26 of those constants. Uh, lots of them, uh, some of them are like, uh, you see the first one, this alpha, that's called the fine structure constant. If you write these constants in a particular way, they just are numbers. Alpha is 1 137th. So some constants like the speed of light, that could be in meters per second or kilometers per hour or whatever. It would have different numbers. But if you express them in this way, they're just pure numbers. So 1 137th. This other thing, alpha sub g, that expresses how strong gravity is. Um, it has a value of about 10 to the minus 38. So a a decimal point, 38 zeros and then a one. So there's an incredibly tiny number. There's another one, uh, the so-called cosmological constant, lambda. Um, this has to do with the discovery made in cosmology over the last couple of decades that the universe is expanding and accelerating in its expansion. So there's a something that is pervading the universe often called dark energy, which is pushing everything apart. This is a major discovery in cosmology, but it can be boiled down to essentially one number, which is the amount of energy. There is in empty space, take away all the stuff. There's still energy. And if that's true, that energy will cause this repulsive force that pushes the universe apart. And the amount of energy is encoded in that symbol lambda, lambda. And it's another t- incredibly tiny number, 10 to the minus 122. Okay, so there's, those are three numbers that characterize aspects of the physical world. And there's a whole bunch more. 20 or 26 or so for the standard model of particle physics. Another, half a dozen or dozen for the model of cosmology, the Big Bang model of cosmology that we have worked out over the past few decades uh, and is extremely successful in describing the universe from very early times up until the present. Okay. So there are these constants. They're baked into the universe at some level and and part of the laws of physics. So what? Well, an interesting question you can ask is what would happen, you know, where did 100, 137th come from? Or these other numbers, where they come from? Nobody knows. Uh, is a, is the short answer. Another question you can ask is, what would happen if they were a little different? So suppose instead of one one hundred thirty seventh, it was one. This fine structure constant was one. Well, it turns out that then the force between atoms would be st- between positively charged particles and atoms would be so strong that essentially no heavy atoms like carbon and silicon and so on would exist they would just not be stable so there wouldn't be atoms chemistry would not exist or would be totally different and things like us certainly would not exist complex creatures like us that can think and ask questions about the universe would not exist what if alpha sub g were one or a tenth Uh, then it turns out that almost everything in the universe would be a black hole okay (laughs) there would not be atoms again and planets and stars and things bunch of black holes If it was much, much weaker, it would be probably the case that galaxies and structure and, again, stars and planets and so on would not form in the uh, history of the universe, especially given if there were a cosmological constant. Or if the cosmological constant lambda were significantly bigger, no galaxies, no stars, no planets, nothing particularly interesting. So if these constants took significantly different values, stuff like us, complex, interesting structures that can be alive and can think and can, can compute and ask questions, wouldn't be here. So why did we get so lucky, it seeming seems, that these take the kind of values that are compatible with things that can think about them? That's a hard question. And if you spend some time thinking about it, you can come up with a few possible ways to address that question. Okay? So one is we got lucky right the universe rolled the dice at the beginning and we needed you know 12 sixes and we just got them we got super lucky there was one roll of the dice boom uh almost certainly there weren't going to be any interesting beings that could contemplate the universe but so happens that there were luck okay that's one explanation pretty shocking if true but that's one explanation uh it could have been designed right there could be a divine creator or a super scientist creating universes in their basement or a mega nerd simulating universes on their laptop, something uh, where we are the end of a design process and the design process said, well, I want to choose parameters such that my universe is going to be interesting and have interesting stuff in it. Of course, you always have the question, well, why was the universe such that the super nerd or crazy scientist or whatever – could exist, right? So it kind of pushes back the question. But design is certainly a way to address this this issue. Uh, it could be what I call fecundity that, that the sort of weird question that I pose is really an illusion because no matter what, chant, what what uh, values these t- things took, or even with different laws of physics, there might not be life like us. But there'd be something happening. There'd be something interesting. No matter what these values were, you know, maybe it would be really weird. Maybe it would be, you know, black hole beings or neutron star, uh, things or they'd be made of particles that we don't know, even know about. Uh, but there'd be something interesting happening there. That's a possibility, although there are many, many values of these parameters where the universe just seems incredibly boring. Like you can predict exactly what it would look like, and it's really boring. So that's a little hard to believe, too. Um, and there's another answer. And to, to frame this answer, I'm, I'm going to do a little reading uh, from the book by a, a chapter of the same name, Theodicy. Um, so I'll take you through that and, and then we'll see, I think, from this koan what the explanation is. Uh, so this, again, is, is one of these parables that you'll find in the book that is kind of bringing you to a, a physics question. This one takes place in Tripoli, Lebanon in 1610. Uh, and it's kind of early on in the journey around the world. Although smaller than Venice, the docks at Tripoli are every bit as noisy, crowded, and smelly. They also hold for you an air of mystery. Since you first set foot in the Ottoman Empire as one of a growing number of visitors from Europe, seeking adventure, and in your case, perhaps a bit of wisdom, you hope to quickly turn your small stake into a larger fortune to finance your further travels. Given your facility with numbers and languages, and your tutelage with Galileo, that's where you start out with Galileo, it's a good good place to start, Um, you assume that multiplying your funds should be no major trouble. On your fourth day in town, something happens that at first you simply dismiss. At the end of a discussion with a trader from Aleppo, a reasonably prosperous-looking merchant sidles up to you and says, You seem a clever type, so I'd like to let you in on an opportunity. I have access to an instrument that can genuinely tell the future. Here, take this. He slips a parchment into your hand and slips away before you can stop him. The parchment, written in a hurried hand, informs you, Three days from now, it will be raining, yet there will be people celebrating in the streets. You will have lost money the day before, but, hope to, but are hoping to make it up for it now. If you reach into your pocket, you will find a coin. If you flip the coin three times, it will come up heads, heads, heads. When all this comes to pass, you will know that my device is as effective as I claim. Visit me at the address below to see it for yourself, and bring your coin. You tuck the parchment away with a dismissive chuckle to yourself. Yet, three days later, as you're trudging through the rain, contemplating the previous day's losses... Amid a crowd of people unaccountably dancing and playing music, the strange document suddenly pops into mind. After verifying its terms, and with some nervous trepidation, you reach into your pocket to find a coin. An uncanny feeling descends as you flip the coin heads, heads, heads. You cannot let it go nor resist the lure of the mystery. Upon your arrival at the address given in the letter, you knock and are admitted. You then immediately discover the merchant's true agenda as you are efficiently and brutally divested of your belongings, including your currency and bundle down a staircase into a basement where you're locked up. Your captivity gives you ample opportunity to reflect on the events leading to your capture. <laughs> How is the parchment so accurate? Could the predictions have been so vague as to have been true of anyone? No, they were quite specific. Could the merchant have simply guessed and been incredibly lucky? That seems hard to countenance. There were too many things to get right. Could it have been somehow planned out, a conspiracy to, in- to engender your belief? Seems not. The festival might be predictable, but how could they make it rain or cause your coin to flip as it did? You're left feeling that the merchant can indeed predict the future, but how? And why then abduct you? Why not use his fortune, his knowledge of the future to make his own fortune? After many, many hours, you're roughly removed from the basement under the command of the merchant. It seems you're to be transported to parts unknown. Being led out through a back corridor, you notice in a large room you pass a veritable army of ragged-looking scribes writing a growing pile of parchments. What are they writing, you ask the merchant. Why they are messages, just like what I gave you, he veritably smirks, but each one just a little bit different. One more new and quite convincing explanation for your argument arises in your mind. It's very clever, you realize, or perhaps you're just a fool, or both. So indeed, any amount of luck can be explained if you roll the dice enough times. Right? So uh, if you write enough parchments, making many, many different predictions, then give them to enough people. For some people, those predictions will come true and be a, seem astonishingly lucky. Uh, if the universe were to roll the dice many, many, many times, at least sometimes the universe would be lucky enough to have the properties that would lead to life. And so a fourth explanation is that there was no single roll of the dice, no single universe, no single choice of these constants but a so-called multiverse, many, 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 many uh, different uh, so-called universes, all potentially combined into one, um, in each of which these so-called fundamental constants are not really constants, they're local uh, properties of the universe that can vary from place to place. And indeed, this idea, the multiverse idea, uh, has gained a lot of currency in, in modern cosmology um, through a mechanism which I've done a lot of study of and, me- and many others have called inflation that is a uh, a way to bring into being many, many different large regions with potentially different properties. So that's another explanation. It's a, it's a somewhat compelling one, but I think the rather than go into the depths of that explanation, I think the crucial thing is uh, if you look at this question, how did we get so lucky as to have these values of these constants in a Uh, in a way that is compatible with complex thinking beings, every one of those four answers, and it's very hard to come up with other answers that aren't essentially those four, every one of them is pretty weird, right? If you really think about it, we got that lucky, or there's a designer that we're all the product of, or that any set of physics rules or constants at all would lead to some form of bizarre life, or that there are other universes. Every one of those is weird. Um, and that's the nature of the universe. Sometimes there aren't any boring answers to a question. And those, I think, are the most fun questions. So, the second tale I'd like to tell is about who cleans the universe. So, and we can start with who cleans the kitchen. Um, I would make some jokes because my uh, family is not here. Well, maybe I'll make them later. Um, they might listen. Um, so, this kitchen. As we know, uh, this is a clean kitchen pictured. That means that the plates are kind of in the right places, the spatulas, the refrigerator door is closed for once, you know, the, um, things are put away. What does that really mean? Well, we can think of the state of the kitchen as a description of all the different elements of the kitchen, all the plates, all the utensils, all the chairs, and so on. And, where each one of them is and maybe which direction it's facing and how fast it's moving or something like that. So the whole list of all those aspects of the kitchen, we could call that a state of the kitchen. And it could be some big list of numbers like this plate three is at this position and that angle and so on. Okay. And then we can think of the set of all possible states the kitchen could have. There are many, 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 many of them, of course. Um, But we're going to simplify it into this nice little simple picture. It's a, two-dimensional diagram instead of like a thousand dimensional or 10 to the 10,000 dimensional one. Uh, But it's a a two-dimensional one. And the idea is just that each point on this diagram, each spot you can point to corresponds to one of those states of the kitchen. Okay. What that also means is that if I go in and move a chair, I change the state of the kitchen from one to the other. And so I move a little bit on this diagram. So I can imagine Uh, an evolution of the kitchen, like if I went in and moved some stuff around, it would correspond to some line moving around on this graph. Uh, If I let my kids loose in the kitchen, it would correspond to some other line moving around on this graph. Okay, so those are all the states of the kitchen. Now I want to label them by which of those states I would call very clean, which one I would call somewhat clean, which one's somewhat dirty, which one's very dirty. And that's kind of a subjective thing at some level, um, but at another level, it's not that subjective. We're pretty much going to agree one kitchen is pretty clean and another kitchen is very dirty. Um, what's also very clear, though, is that the set of states that we would call very clean is going to be really, really small compared to the set of states that we call dirty or very dirty or something like that. Right? There are very few places you can put forks in your kitchen where they're tidy. In many, many places, you can stick a fork in your kitchen that will make the kitchen a little messier. So... We can partition up this space into these different categories, but it'll be a really, really tiny area that is clean, bigger area that's somewhat clean, bigger area that's somewhat dirty, very big area that's very dirty. Okay, so what does that mean? What it means that is if we go into the kitchen and it's very clean and we sort of just start changing the state of the kitchen in some way, we're very likely to make the kitchen dirtier. Right, because there's just lots more ways it can be dirty than ways it can be clean. So if we're not deliberately trying to clean it, if we're just kind of moving stuff at random, uh, we are going to make the kitchen dirtier. And it's almost entirely unlikely that if we move into the, you know, that if a tornado comes through the kitchen or my son, that they're gonna, the kitchen is just going to somehow become more clean, right? Um, because they're just moving it around and they're almost certainly going to make it dirtier. This is what's called the second law of thermodynamics in action, <laughs> So, so we can formally define things in just that way. Um, so there's something in physics called entropy. We can think of entropy as, uh, a quantity that's, com- that is connected with one of those descriptions. So we could call those four levels of description dirty, somewhat dirty, somewhat clean, very clean, kind of s- states of the kitchen. And each one of them was- would have an entropy. And the entropy is related to how many states of the kitchen correspond to that description. So the entropy of a clean kitchen is very low. The entropy of a very dirty kitchen is high. The second law of thermodynamics say that says that entropy is, tends to increase. It's non-decreasing. And what that means is that under the f- sort of laws of physics, which are more like, you know, a, a four-year-old than a, than a cleaning agent, the kitchen will just wander around, or any system will wander around in its state space and will tend to go to higher and higher entropy. So that second law is nothing other than, you know, the tendency of things to get messier. We can also define a quantity that's kind of the opposite of entropy. We could call it order. That is, the maximum disorder a system can have or the maximum entropy a system can have minus the entropy that it has now. So you could say that the kitchen is, has zero order when it's completely, absolutely, totally messy, and it has lots of order when it's very clean, just because the gap between the entropy of the clean kitchen and the maximum entropy it could have is large. We call that order. So the second law in that sense says that order decays. It goes away. Okay? So then the question is, how is order created? That is, if order goes away, how do we find orderly things in the world? There, there are lots of things that are at low entropy. Um, how are they still around if that order just tends to go away? So one explanation for that is that an agent can create order. So if I go into the kitchen, I can find it messy. uh, And if I'm properly motivated, I can cause its evolution to go to one of those cleaner states, right? So I can just do that. I can choose an evolution through the state space to make it clean. Well, that's fine. But, you know, I'm kind of limited. I'm uh, also subject to the second law. So, you know, if you consider me and the kitchen together— I might clean, but I get a little tired of cleaning after a while. I might have digested a little bit of food. I need to eat a little bit more. Uh, and that's because I'm creating entropy in myself as I clean the kitchen. So if I want to keep cleaning the kitchen or keep the kitchen clean, I'm going to have to eat food, which essentially is low entropy stuff. And I'm going to have to let the entropy of that stuff and me and the kitchen all increase while I keep the entropy of the kitchen low. That is, I can create order in the kitchen, but at the expense of disorder in me, and I have to imbibe more disorder, more ordered stuff if I want to keep doing that. So I can appeal to a larger system, and that, that, that means that I can appeal to a larger system. If I want to keep this one orderly, I can sort of dump my disorder somewhere else. I can take order from it, or I can dump disorder into a larger system. Same thing with the refrigerator, right? If you, the refrigerator cools down the stuff inside it, But it doesn't do that for free. That cool stuff is more orderly, but it gives off a bunch of heat. And if you try to cool a room down by just putting a refrigerator in it and opening it up, it'll feel good for a little while, but in the long term it won't work because the amount of hot stuff, the entropy that it's releasing, will overwhelm the amount of cooling that you've done, and the whole room overall will get hotter. So you can appeal to a larger system to make order, but you can then say, well, okay, you can appeal to that larger system, but why is there order in that larger system? Why is there a highly ordered set of food that I can eat? Well, at some level, that's because you can grow food using sunlight. Sunlight is a low entropy, very highly ordered source of energy that comes from the sun. But wait a minute. Why is the sun so highly ordered? And so you can see that you can go to larger systems, but each of these larger systems is still subject to the second law, still subject to the decay of order. Why does it have the order that it has? And what you see is that you can keep pushing this back um, farther and farther. And and I I give it in the form of this somewhat different in format koan than than the last one. Uh, This this is a dialogue between uh, a cook and uh, a teacher. The teacher says, The honored one states that all ordered things are impermanent and tend to fall into disorder. The cook says, Indeed, look at this moldy rice. The world is old. Why has the kitchen not long ago dissolved into dust? Perhaps order arises from disorder. Does the kitchen clean itself? It does when I'm in the kitchen. This is what we've discussed. But where does your breakfast come from? The sunlight and the rain? Why does the sun shine? Because it was born. Who gave birth to the sun? The universe. Who cleans the universe? (laughs) That is, we can appeal to larger and larger systems to say, where did the order come from? Where does the entropy go? But at some point we get to the universe. It's kind of the ultimate large system. How did the? Why does the universe have all this order in it that we inherit through galaxies and stars and sunlight and clouds, sunlight in the rain and food and so on to keep the kitchen clean? And the question of why does the universe have all this order? Why did the universe start out very low entropy and why does the universe have so much lower entropy than it could have? The answer to that question, we don't know. Nobody knows, period. Uh, There are semi-answers to that question, again, in this theory of inflation that I talked about earlier, but the short answer is that nobody knows the answer to this question. It is simply a fundamental uh, mystery in cosmology at the moment and is, in some sense, the biggest mystery in cosmology because everything in the universe is sort of made of order, just as much as it's made of uh, energy or of protons, electrons, and and neutrons. It's made of order. All of that order is inherited from the very ordered early state of the universe. The explanation for that very ordered early state of the universe is absent. So there you go. So if you will, I'd like you to look at the center of the screen and look very carefully and see if you see something. Did anyone see anything there? How many people saw something? let me do it one more time, see if you see something in the center of the screen. Anyone else see it? A little, very transient flash. Okay, so around half people saw it, around half the people didn't see it. There's no prize for seeing it, it's just a demonstration. Um, And the purpose of it is as follows... So if we think about that flash of light, it comes off the screen as a bunch of photons, way more than 30, as it turns out. But the human eye is actually sensitive to if this was a really dark room and we were uh, acclimated to it. A handful of photons, even one photon, can be seen by the human eye. So we're very sensitive. The photons came from the screen and they came into our eyes, all of our eyes. But, But photons are individual particles Individual particles in physics are described by the theory of quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics uh, says very, very specific things about the world. In particular, that if I have a set of photons, there isn't a single number of photons that is in that set. Okay, It's basically impossible to have exactly 30 photons. There's always going to be a combination of different numbers of photons in a physical system. And quantum mechanics calls this a superposition. We can call it simply... Uh, A simplified version of this would say that there's both emanating from the screen, 30 photons and 40 photons. The state of the photons exiting the screen is such that it is both 30 and 40. So this is a very strange thing about quantum mechanics, right? We're used to things having definite values, and quantum mechanics tells us that there isn't a definite answer to the question how many photons are coming off the screen. But you would think, well, maybe there's an ambiguity in that, but once we see it, it's one or the other. It's either 30 or 40. But that's also not quite what quantum mechanics tells you. What it actually tells you is that as, insofar as quantum mechanics describes everything, with, and, and that seems to be the case in physics, at least thus far, it says that quantum mechanics also describes the matter in your eye. And what actually happens when the photons go into your eye is that they just, through the the laws of physics, get mixed up in the atoms that are composing your eye and create a new quantum state describing the photons and your eye. But it has this nature. It's a combination of an eye that has 30 photons in it and an eye that had 40 photons in it. Okay, not one or the other. They're both in the mathematics. But then you can say, okay, well, those photons uh, got absorbed by some rods in the back of your eye and your retina, and the rods fired and sent nerve signals. Um, But again... As long as quantum mechanics describes those rods or the nerve signals, you can see where this is going. We now have two sets of nerves, two brains, both described mathematically in quantum mechanics as there. But in one of those brains, the brain registers, I saw the little blink of light. And in the other one, I didn't see the little blink of light. In the mathematics of quantum mechanics, those are both there. One that says I saw it, one that says I didn't see it. Which one are you, of those two? They're both there in the mathematics. Now, this is a puzzle that's been sitting around for a hundred years or so, um, and there are a few things we can talk, we can say about it. So, the one thing is, the world is not deterministic. Okay, that is, there's a set of equations in quantum mechanics, and those equations are deterministic. So, the laws that say how that state of the system evolves, that it goes from. Uh, two sets of photons and one eye and so on into the combination of two different brains, that is deterministic, as it turns out. But if we ask uh, at the level of uh, what happens, say, to a person in a room looking at the wall, um, one present, that is the present before I flash the light, leads to many futures. There is a future in the mathematics in which each of you saw saw the thing and says, oh, I saw it. And in, which of, in, and in which each of you didn't see it. They're both in the mathematics. Yet you experienced only one of those two things, right? You didn't experience both. There's only one. So how do we make sense of that? So, so that is the mathematics that is described by quantum mechanics doesn't match the reality that is there in that particular sense, that the mathematics says that there are two branches, there are two outcomes, but what we experience is one of them. And there are a couple of different ways of looking at it. Two two chief ways of looking at it that have arisen, and there are a few others that are sort of less popular. Both of them very strange. So one says, okay, there's the math, but it's not really in one-to-one correspondence with reality. There's something extra, like there's one of those outcomes that they both have the same mathematical description, that they're in the state of the universe, but one of them actually happened. It has an extra property beyond the math that is having happenness. Um, it's there in one of them, but not the other for some reason. And which one ends up with that property is kind of random, and that's where randomness comes into quantum mechanics, but it's in one of the others. But it goes beyond the mathematics of quantum mechanics, and there's no other description of it. So, so one of the strange things about quantum mechanics is you might think uh, one of these comes true, but there's some reason that one of them happens and the other one didn't. But... There is nothing in quantum mechanics and in any of the extensions that people that, that really are able to make sense of in which that extra thing can be uh, described mathematically. So it's there, but it isn't a part of the mathematics. It's this extra reality that goes beyond the math. So this is one possibility. Very weird. The other is that both are true. Both things happen. There is one of you that saw the flash. There's one of you that didn't see the flash. They're both equally real. They both exist. You only are one of them, but the other one is there as well, somewhere uh, out there. This is called the many worlds version of quantum mechanics, and it's at least as weird as the other one, right? That the universe is constantly splitting into many, many, many possibilities, uh, and many, many, many realities, because all possibilities are realized. So the fascinating thing about this question, this question of quantum mechanics, is that it's absolutely basic. It's absolutely fundamental to our understanding of the universe. The predictions of quantum mechanics statistically, when it creates probabilities for things, are just spot on. And yet we have no clue at this level, like, are there multiple U's or just one in some weird beyond-the-mathematics way? We have no clue how to think about the meaning of this theory of quantum mechanics that is so clearly true. Um, so this is just a strange thing. Uh, and many of the, the cons in this book, uh, explore some of the implications of thinking about one direction or the other of this. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that this is one of those mysteries that you feel like there is an answer to it, but it's just unclear how we're ever going to know what that answer is. And it's, uh, both frustrating and I would say beguiling. <laughs> so, so these are three examples. There, there, there are lots more. Um, in the book *Cosmological Coons. Um, and I would say that uh, that it's uh, having written the book, my my sort of appreciation for the the strangeness of the universe, um, while it's still being comprehensible, um, as as Einstein put it, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is its comprehensibility. Um, <laughs> but I'm not totally sure I agree because there's lots of really incomprehensible stuff about how it actually is as well. So I hope uh, those of you who, who read it will enjoy it. And I, I look forward to hearing your questions.
1: I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they're listening to professor Anthony Aguirre speaking about his book, cosmological cones um, on the entropy on the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, localized anti-entropic behavior. I mean, we can make a Commonwealth Club building. We can you know, put things together. We can make things happen. But as you said, that, that there's a certain amount of heat that, that is created because of that. Right. And is it, isn't the question about the, the, when you get to the big picture, whether it's a closed system or an open system?
0: Well, the universe is hard to make an open system, right? Because the universe yeah. is everything there. So, exactly. so, so there you, you sort of can't avoid the paradox. You can keep pushing it back, if mm-hmm. you like, as you say. Um, if you say, as long as it's an open system, then the entropy can go down. And that's absolutely true. Because mm-hmm. the, in some larger system that contains that, the entropy might go up. But you can, at the expense of higher entropy in one part, lower the entropy in another. And that's just what a refrigerator does or mm-hmm. someone cleaning the kitchen. But the universe, you're kind of stuck because what larger system are you going to appeal to? Mm -hmm. Um, And one answer might be the multiverse. So, Mm -hmm. so this is one way of looking at this question is to say, uh, is there a way, if there's a multiverse, uh, is there a way in which the universe, the, the entropy in our universe can start low somehow at the expense of more entropy elsewhere? And I think that's an interesting idea, but it's not one. I mean, there's a lot of debate in cosmology as to at what level the, a multiverse or, or the inflation model that can give rise to a multiverse can actually uh, address this big question. I think at some level it does in that uh, this inflation process is something that does naturally give rise to, I haven't described what inflation is, but you know, there's not really time for that, mm-hmm. but there, there is a process that gives rise to a very low entropy looking region.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so in that sense, it seems hopeful but at the same time, you can say, uh, if that process also obeys the second law of thermodynamics, then it had to have operated starting with an even lower entropy thing in order to create our universe. And so you haven't really, from that aspect, bought anything. So so I think this is just a big open question as to whether it's just a sort of assumption. We just have to like flat out assume as like a, a, an axiom that the universe started out as low entropy, or if there's some level of explanation uh, that can tell us a story in physics as to, as to how the entropy seems so low while being consistent with things like the second law.
1: Has anyone uh, in physics proposed a Roomba vacuum cleaner theory, that is, uh, you know, have a black hole that zips around and, and, and picks up everything and, and squashes it down and sends it out orderly again?
0: Um, yeah. Well, it, they, it's we interesting talk- you mentioned black holes. So, yeah. so they, uh, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff about the entropy of black holes because mm-hmm. you can imagine, in in somewhat as you as you somewhat jokingly say, you know, if I have some high entropy thing, why not lower entropy by just throwing it in a black hole and hiding the entropy, like like shoving <laughs> shoving the stuff under the bed, right? Um, but this actually concerned people when they first started thinking about black holes. Like, do we violate the second law when we throw? A box of high entropy stuff into a black hole and what they worked out is that no the right way to think about it is that a black hole has entropy Mm -hmm. Um, and this goes hand in hand with stephen hawking's famous uh result that black holes actually radiate Mm -hmm. they're thermodynamic things that radiate so an entropy a black hole has entropy and it turns out if you choose the right way to ascribe entropy to a black hole it solves this problem in that when you throw something with entropy into a black hole That thing also has energy or mass. It increases the size of the black hole. That, as it turns out, increases how much entropy the black hole has. And it always works out such that at the end, the entropy is higher than you started. Mm. So your black hole Roomba would work. It would totally work, Mm -hmm. uh, except your Roomba would get bigger and bigger as a black hole. And if you count its entropy, Mm -hmm. you still haven't evaded the second
1: law. Okay, good. Questions, yeah. Okay. Uh, On entropy, entropy is a statistical
0: function, right, where it's highly more probable that entropy increases, but it's not guaranteed. It's statistically possible for entropy reversing events to occur. Yes. And given enough time, an infinite amount of time, it's inevitable that entropy reversing events will occur. So wouldn't it just be that everything's bouncing around the universe in a maximum entropy state? And it would be inevitable at some time, everything would order itself into a minimum entropy state. Um, and then going back to your quantum mechanics example, since everything both occurs and doesn't occur, then you would have both a maximum entropy state and a minimum entropy state occurring simultaneously, and we happen to be in the, started off in a minimum entropy state. Yeah, yeah, so this, this is a great question that goes all the way back to Boltzmann who thought about this issue of, you know, he, he realized it was a little bit weird to, real, to think that, entropy was uh, increasing and that it it somehow started low. Um, And it was, I think it was actually first suggested by like an assistant of Boltzmann's, or at least he blamed the assistant for it. Um, (laughs) The idea that there are fluctuations downward in entropy, as you say, that they statistically have to happen and do happen in physical systems you look at. Um, So could the explanation for the low entropy universe just be that it was a downward fluctuation in entropy? And the pro, you know, and people have thought a lot about this. And the and the real problem with this is that if you ask for, if you say, what is it that I want to explain? So suppose I want to say, how did the how did the solar system get so orderly? Okay, you could say, um, the universe as a, as a whole is in equilibrium, and there's just a fluctuation in entropy downward, a statistical fluctuation. Um, And if you ask what kind of statistical fluctuation do you need to create a solar system, it's a huge fluctuation, like incredibly improbable. But as you say, if you wait long enough, it will happen. But it's incredibly more probable that the universe will stay in equilibrium and just the solar system will fluctuate downward in entropy. But the rest of the universe will stay in equilibrium. It's much more probable for that to happen than that the entire universe fluctuates down in entropy into something like the Big Bang. Okay, so, so the problem with this explanation is that whatever you ask for, you say, I want to explain data X by an entropy fluctuation. Statistically, the most, by far the most probable thing will be whatever the minimum fluctuation in entropy is to give you that X. So if the X is a solar system, it will be the absolute smallest fluctuation in entropy to give you a solar system. If it's this room, it will be the absolute smallest fluctuation that it takes to get this room out of equilibrium. If it's just a brain that perceives for a moment, oh, here I am, what a mystery it is that entropy is so low, that's all it will get. Equilibrium, but one brain that fluctuates into existence. And these even have a name of Boltzmann brains. Then they're in in discussion in the physics community. (laughs) Um, So... So it's very hard to make a theory like that viable because, um, what we see, what we seem to see is that a tremendous amount more universe is there with low entropy than what we actually need to, to explain any set of local data. And so you, an explanation like that of the universe just as a, as a fluctuation in entropy just seems to be not viable in that way. And there's, there's a significant literature on this because it's a beguiling thought. Of course, entropy does go down, so why can't it just do that? But it, in practice, it turns out to be really, really hard to explain things that way.
1: Which geographical location did you put the entropy chapter in? I mean, uh, was this it... one
0: was in, that one was in Japan. That was in, in Kyoto. Okay,
1: a very orderly place. <laughs> Other questions?
0: I'm, I'm just curious about the relation of koans and physicists. Uh-huh. Is that a term that's used in... You know, I, I Googled it, and I only found a few other people who referred to things as koans. Um, I think one of them was Lenny Susskind, who, who thinks uh, he's, a, he's a famous black hole physicist at Stanford who mentioned, and, you know, here's a koan about. Um, but I think it's a good term because, you know, physicists talk about paradoxes quite a bit. Um, and you're really excited when you find a paradox in physics. I mean, that's a really good thing because that's where there's something interesting happening where there's where you say, look, I understand up to here and I understand up to here, but there's a contradiction. That's a really juicy thing because uh, partly just because it's fun, but partly what's great about physics is that you know that if things are well-defined enough, there will be a resolution to that paradox. That's one of the great gifts that nature gives us, that comprehensibility. Some of these questions are very, very hard to answer. Maybe at some level unanswerable, but when you have two well posed things in physics that seem to be in conflict, there is a resolution to that, mm. um, and so, and that resolution is usually pretty interesting, uh, and sometimes points the way to some really new, radically different understanding of the phenomenon that you're looking at. So when you find one of those, that's that's an exciting thing, um, and so I I sort of see it like a lot of the a lot of the hard part of research is not answering questions like once you, it is hard to work out the mathematics once you've posed a problem to figure out, you know, what the, the sort of mathematical solution to it is say, but a lot of the the hard part of physics is figuring out what are the interesting questions that you want to ask. And so a lot of it is finding where to, where is there something weird? Where is there a contradiction? Where is there something that just seems at odds with the way that I understood this before. And that, that in some sense is exactly the, the nature of the koan, like, wow, how is, how can that be? Um, So I like it as, as that sort of term, a sort of um, encapsulation of some physics mystery in a way that can be portrayed in that interesting way to somebody else. Can you speak to potentially new forms of forces that we're not accounted for? I've, I've seen things written about consciousness as being a force uh, of the universe that we don't quite understand uh, yet. Could that help explain some of the paradoxes that you see? Yeah. So I, something that probably hasn't become clear from, from the particular choices of koans that I made here is that as the book goes on, it gets somewhat more sort of philosophical and is making, I would say a, a kind of case about the the nature of reality, which is that in a lot of ways, we talk about physicists are, 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 are tend to do this and, and whether it's admirable or, or they should feel guilty, I don't know. But physicists tend to think about things as um, everything is physics and, and the other stuff is kind of Details that can, that can be worked out, mm-hmm. right? That, that there's a correct, true understanding of things that's in terms of quarks or superstrings or atoms or whatever on, you know, obeying the standard model of particle physics. Um, and then in principle, if we were just smart enough, we could get everything else from that. And so everything is really determined by those fundamental laws. And if we're really like smart people, we'll study those because those are the really true and important thing. And, and part of the case that this book makes is that that's just not the right way to think about it. That, um, there are many different ways of describing reality the, at the fundamental physics level, but also at different levels of description. And, and I don't want to suggest that that there's like, this one's better and that there are the other ones. I think um, it's better to think that there are many dis- different descriptions of reality that are all true at the level at which you're describing some phenomenon. They're compatible with each other. Right. So you might describe something at the, at the mental level and the operations of the brain as sort of ideas and thoughts and, uh, motivations and emotions and even computations if you want a little bit lower or the operation of a computer in terms of computations. All those things are going to be compatible with other fundamental laws of physics. Like, you know, just imagining that I can walk off this podium and just hover in midair it's not going to happen. Like my, although the laws that describe my body and my mind are, uh, much better discussed in terms of things like, uh, motivations and thoughts and, uh, desires and things like that. Um, that doesn't mean that, that I'm not subject to those same fundamental laws. Um, but at the same time, I think they are in many ways not determined by those fundamental laws. So to go from the fundamental description to the description of, say, a mind, there are all kinds of extra things that are added in as you go up the, again, I, I shouldn't, as you go over <laughs> to the to the mental level from, from that level of atoms and particles and things. Um, and those things, those extra things are not sort of extra physical things. They're not like, different energies or other forces or something like that, I believe there are things that are described within science, but they aren't part of that fundamental description. And they should be thought of at a, as a sort of different level of reality uh, that is just as valid and real to talk about this level of reality as it is to talk about that level. So, so I, I don't see um, the addition of extra sort of forces as such being useful, like forces on the same plane as electromagnetism or dark energy or something like we, we know the ones that are, that are operating in day-to-day life. And if, and if there were a new one, that would be really exciting. And, but, but very hard because the forces that we know about explain a tremendous amount of stuff. And it's very hard to find an experiment that isn't explained with the standard model of particle physics. Um, At the same time, I think there are lots of parts of reality for which those forces just are. It, it's utterly useless to think of those levels of reality in terms of those forces. You know, if you want to describe what a computer is doing, um, talking about the the like interatomic forces in the uh, in the makeup of the computer, it's useful for designing the transistors, um, and the transistors are useful designing the computer, but to talk about what the computer is going to do, I want to be talking about things like, uh, code and, you know, commands to the operating system and what operating system it's running and things like that. That's the proper level of description. And to get that from the other one is simply not a possible task. So, and especially with biological systems, I think it's extra difficult, uh, because the, the there simply isn't going to be a, uh, like a really direct mapping from that atom level description to what's happening at the mental level. So I think, uh and this goes for questions like um what is mine and questions like you know whether we have free will i think there are questions that are happening on one level of description of reality that are constrained by but just not determined by those other levels so so that's a long answer to that question but 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 that's sort of the case that i i would say i lay out in the later chapters of this
1: another question do you, do you deal with maybe not the paradox, but the conflict between quantum mechanics and, and relativity theory? Because that's been around for a long time.
0: It's a great one. I, I there's so many interesting questions that didn't make it into this book. I mean, it's a pretty thick book, but there are lots, <laughs> there are lots that didn't. Quantum gravity is not in there. Lots of questions about black holes are not in there. Mm. Lots of aspects of quantum mechanics. Um, I mean, I, I hesitate to to say that I would write a second one like this, but but I may, maybe some articles or something, because there are lots more bouncing around in my mind. Quantum gravity, I don't really, I don't really tackle in this, Mm -hmm. I would say.
1: How did you come up with the idea for the geographical, you know, link to all the questions?
0: Yeah, I think uh, I wanted to, I think it started with the, you know, I wanted to to pose this koan uh, that had Galileo in it. So mm-hmm. I thought okay I'm just going to put Galileo in there and then I posed another one that had uh that had Dogen I, I, I hey Dogen a, a 12th century uh Zen philosopher or, or adept mm-hmm. in it. And so I kept filling them in and then it got sort of terribly confusing because there were all these different time periods and all these different people and I thought it would be nice to just have it make one continuous mm-hmm. uh story. So I kind of, this is part of what took so long writing this book. I continually reimagined it. So, Mm -hmm. so then at some point I decided it would all take place sort of at the same time and then fit them together into this narrative and into, and where there's kind of a storyline at some Mm -hmm. level. Um, so that took a lot of work, but was a tremendous amount of fun just figuring mm-hmm. out the connection between historical figures. I learned more about early 17th century world history than I ever anticipated <laughs> that I would. Um, not that you should believe any of the history in this book. <laughs> strong disclaimer there, but it, but it was fun for me to learn about that. Um, so it just sort of evolved steadily from that starting point, I would say.
1: That's a, a unique way to uh, lay out physics questions. Some of the other physicists, uh, you know, liked it. Disliked it? Do you, uh, I mean, have you had a lot of reaction from your colleagues? I th- yeah, I think physicists tend
0: to like it because they, you know, they know a lot of the physics, so for them, it's kind of fun to read it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, a, a my colleagues who I talk about these questions with all the time would most enjoy kind of reading the koans themselves and seeing, right. oh, that one's about this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and seeing the storyline. So, yeah, I think I, I've gotten I've gotten pretty good feedback from from the the people that I'd like to talk about these questions with. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah. Yeah. None of them I have, have, I've, I've gotten surprisingly little like, Oh, you're, you're infecting physics with this weird (laughs) Zen koan stuff. Because I I think um, there, there, there are books that, that sort of take, you know, anything and put the word quantum in front of it, yeah. and, you know, and, and that's not what this is. Obviously this is, a, this is the sort of physics and philosophy and, and reality book, but it's not, um, it Deepak doesn't have Chopra. an agenda of, of kind of <laughs> taking Eastern mysticism and smashing it together with physics in some way.
1: Yeah. Um, our the, our last not speaker on quantum mechanics dissed Deepak Chopra for, for, for that with his, right. With his, that approach, you can use the word quantum. And so uh, that was, that was a great, talk on something extremely abstract. And it's a great, great idea for the narrative to, to run the ideas through. I mean, that's a very unique way of looking at it. So thank you very much. Thank you.
0: It's great to be here.
1: And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.